last time I spoke, uh, three or four weeks ago, I can't remember now, I, I, I talked about the promised land, you might recall, and um, how the experience that Israel, the children of Israel, um, had as they entered the promised land was really very similar to us. You know, we've entered our promised land, we went through the waters of baptism, and uh, far from the promised land being heaven, it's not heaven yet, we're still here on earth, and it was that for the children of Israel as well, there were battles to be fought, there were fights to be won, there was territory to be overcome, there was evil to, to get rid of uh, when the children of Israel went into the promised land. And uh, there was a whole, whole bunch of lessons that we went through because of that. And, and of course, um, even though they had so many battles to fight, they also uh, had God on their side, as we do too. Amen? And so we find ourselves in this life and we find ourselves with battles and things that we need to um, overcome. Um, but we've always got the Lord who's our champion and going before us. And of course, um, you know, they, they really anticipated, the children of Israel anticipated and ended up with the, the city of Jerusalem, the city of peace. And we also have this incredible hope and amazing knowledge of the new Jerusalem that will appear as, as Revelations talks about. And it will be a wonderful time. And then last week we had Pastor Chris Kernahan uh, speaking to us about unity and the power of unity. And of course the children of Israel needed to be united when they went through and fought their battles. When they weren't united, it didn't work. And we find that as well. We need to be united together and so that we can, you know, win the battles that we need to fight. You know, a lot of the battles that we fight are personal, um, rather than like Raphael's family, the, the, uh, the, uh, the armies that are, uh, you know, sort of trying to take over Cameroon there. So our battle, the battles are often personal, but we have each other to work with and to be united with. But of course, one thing about battles is that they're hard. They take sweat and commitment and resolve and strength and skill. And while it's, while it can be tough and prolonged, um, our, the, the things that we are dealing with, and we have this amazing human knack of starting to doubt when battles, when, when, when we are confronted with things. And we can, we can doubt our experience with God even. Um, you know, we can doubt, you know, how can he possibly like me because I know who I really am. And goodness me, I'm, I'm not good enough for God. I'll never be good enough for God. We can start to feed on these doubts, and they can rob us of our joy. And, of course, doubt is a real killer. It's the opposite of faith. It, is, it distracts us from our real reason for living. It can destroy our foundation and our trust in the foundation of the truth of the word of God. It can wreck our confidence as a child of the Most High God. Right? And these phrases are not empty phrases, the Most High God. We are talking about the God who created the universe. And of course, doubt in the end can, can defeat us if we're not careful. James 1 talks about that. And if you read, you know, any of David's Psalms, I mean, that's, David was, um, it can be described in many ways, uh, but you see through his Psalms the humanity 
his humanity, I guess. It really comes through. And, and so many Psalms are saying, oh, God, where are you? You know, God, um, you know, deliver me. Amen. Uh, and as well as that wreck vengeance on those that would have my life sort of thing. So he's, he's, it's a very, comes across very much. And he very much describes the human condition that we find ourselves in. And there's a great thought that comes out of Mark 4, uh, verses 35 to 41. This is where they're crossing the lake. And uh, Jesus says, we're going to go over to the other side of the lake. So he gets in, he lies down, and he goes to sleep. He's been preaching all day. Uh, he's tired. And he's in a, you know, he's got a human body. He needs to sleep. And of course, um, he knew what was going to happen. We know that, don't we? And in the middle of the lake, you know, the, the wind starts um, blowing and the waves get up and, and, the, and the disciples are seeing what they're battling at that point in time. They're saying, hey, these waves are getting pretty big. Um, yeah, we, we know what this lake can be like and it can be treacherous and dangerous and we're getting a bit worried and they wake Jesus up. And, of course, Jesus just knew that they were going to get to the other side. He demonstrated that, or he demonstrated the power of God when he said, peace be still and the storm's calm. And so we can sometimes lose sight, because of the waves are looking a bit rough, of who is in the boat with us. Jesus Christ. And at these times of trouble, we can call on him and he says, peace be still, and it's right. And and it it sort of beggars my belief in a way that, that while we can be enduring difficult things, we can still have the peace of God that's rested on our heart. That despite the circumstances we might be dealing with, that nevertheless the peace of God, the contentment, the knowledge of who God is with, with us is, uh, is deep within us. And that's just a wonderful thing to consider and reflect on and to act on. Amen? And I know we've all felt this. I think everyone here is human, so I'm pretty much guessing everyone's felt these kind of things at times. Romans 5 verses 8 to 10 talks about how we were worthy of God's love and grace while we were sinners and hated him. So how much more worthy are we going to be now that we're rescued, now that we've gone through the waters of baptism, now that we've made a choice about who's the most important thing in person in my life? And Hebrews 12 verses 2, verse 2, is described as the author and the finisher of our faith. We have faith in him, it begins our relationship with God, but then he also declares that as much as I've started, I've worked with you, much as I've started faith in you, I'm going to finish it as well. And so today I've called this talk, um, Eavesdropping on Christ. It's an antidote for doubt, John 17. It's Christ's prayer that he prays in John 17. I, I think it's, it might be nearly 10 years since I've talked about this. It's just a wonder. I love this chapter, and I hope some of that um, comes across today as well. Have you ever listened to someone else pray? Have you eavesdropped on someone else's prayer? It can be a beautiful thing. I remember going around to a, a sister's place. Uh, one day I had to drop something off or whatever, and I knocked on the front door and never answered the door, but I could hear her praying inside. It was just the most beautiful thing to hear, just the most beautiful thing to hear. And so I just quietly went away and <laughs> came back another time. So we're listening in on this very private, this personal prayer 
that Christ prayed in John 17. I reckon, it doesn't say it exactly, but I reckon this was the prayer that he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, the, the prayer that he prayed when he was, he was sweating drops of blood, he was in such anguish over what, uh, physical anguish over what was going to happen. This was the time when he was off praying and his disciples fell asleep. So I don't know how we got these words that are in John 17 that John wrote. Um, no doubt the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, hey, because I think John was asleep at the time that Jesus was praying this. And a whole chapter of John, or John dedicates a whole chapter of his book um, to this prayer. And John, as I've said before, he was very selective about what he put in his book. Um, not very much in John is also is, is, is copied and uh, uh, have uh, in the other Gospels. Instead, John seems to take a particular event, like in John 9, he takes the event of a blind man being healed and the whole chapter is about that event and the consequences of that event. And there's some really important lessons in John 9 that we can read because of that. Uh, in John 20, verse 31, he says that these things are written. I'm writing these things to you, says John, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you may have life in his name. So he's writing these things to establish more firmly the foundation that we have in Jesus Christ and who he is in God and what God's got for us. So when he spends a whole chapter on a subject, then we ought to, ought to take note of it. It is an amazing chapter. It's his longest, Christ's longest recorded prayer. We have a few of Christ's prayers recorded in the Gospels. But he's pouring his heart out in a very, to God in a very personal, very intimate way. He knows what's about to happen and the cruelty of, uh, of what he's going to have to endure. And yet his prayer is hardly at all about himself. He's not thinking about what he has to, well, he's thinking about what he has to go through, but that's not what he's praying about. He is praying about his disciples, who he's going to have to leave, and about us. This is a very personal prayer about us as well. He's praying for you and me. So I just wanted to work through it today. It's in three parts. Um, verses 1 to 5, Christ is just praying about himself and his relationship with God. Verses 6 to 19, he's praying for his disciples. In verses 20 to 26, the end of the chapter, he's praying for us. It's Christ's personal prayer to God for us. And we know, you know, the scriptures say that he intercedes on our behalf. You know, that he is the mediator between us and God. And so he is always communicating with God uh, on our behalf. And this is, you know, a few verses where we actually hear some of the things he says. So let's um, just read 1 to 5 to start with. I'm going to read out of the NLT just for clarity because I want to read all of the scriptures. After saying all these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one that you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do 
And now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. I just want to pick up a couple of little themes out of each of these uh, little sections of Scripture. So, Father, the hour is come. His whole reason for becoming a man is coming to fruition. Now, he didn't really want to go through with it. He prayed that prayer, but he knew that he had to and he was prepared to. And when he did so, he was thinking not of his pain, but he was thinking beyond that of what he was going to be able to achieve for all of us. The hour has come. He knows that this is the, the time, the moment. To glorify, this word glorify is used to fit a little bit through the, this particular chapter. You know, that God glorifies Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ glorifies him, that we glorify God and God glorifies us as well. There's a lot of glorying going on. And what is this glory? It is to honour. It is to be an example of. It is to represent. And yeah, we're children of God just like Christ was. And this is a lovely way for us to start a new prayer of ours. You know, honour me with your faith and glory, Lord, so that I can in turn honour you and return that faith and that honour back to you. Another little theme in here is that it's finished, it's complete. Christ's work here is about to be completed. He's got more work to do, as, as we've said. He's, he's busy there medita- mediating on our behalf right now. But his work on earth was just about done. And then to follow Christ's work is our work. That was the commission that God, that Christ gave his disciples. Go and do likewise. Amen? He moved on. He did what he had to do, and now it's up to us to do what we have to do. What is eternal life? It's to know the one and only true God. This is not a superficial knowledge. This is not a knowledge and knowing like you like you get an education, like you learn arithmetic or you know you, you learn facts and figures. This is the knowledge that comes with a deep and an intimate relationship. It's an understanding that only comes from the power and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. That point he says towards the end of it, um, bring me back to your glory that we shared before the world began. You know, science can tell us a lot about the world, and it does, and it's telling us so much. It's just amazing the complexity that, that there is in life and in creation, and it's just full of wonder. Uh, First Corinthians references that. So it can tell us a lot about how we exist, how we came to be, about creation itself, how God made it happen. It's, it's written there in the, in the, uh, you know, in the matter that God created. But science can never, um, explain or measure or describe or even hypothesize about God because God is outside creation. God Jesus Christ existed before creation. God is spiritual and he made us to be both physical and spiritual. The physical part, you know, we, you know, our physical life has a lifespan. Our spiritual part has an eternal lifespan. Quite beyond anything that we can kind of imagine. And Christ is also anticipating the time of being restored, being you know, he's about to be humiliated in the sight of men. But while man might look at that, you know, that broken body on the cross and jeer at him, 
Well, God has turned away from him at that moment. But in the resurrection, God glorifies Jesus Christ as he glorified us in our resurrections from baptism. The next few verses, uh, 6 to 19, uh, he's talking about the disciples. And this actually is in sort of three parts as well. In the first part, he talks about revelation for his disciples, and then the next part, about protection for them. And then thirdly, about holiness for his disciples. So in this particular one, verses 6 to 8, I revealed you to the ones that you gave me from this world. They were always yours. You gave them to me and they kept your word. He's talking about his disciples. Now they know everything that I have is a gift from you. For I have passed on to them the message that you gave me and they accepted it. And they know that I came from you and they believe that you sent me. They were always yours. The other scripture that, you know, we aren't just here by chance. But God knew about each of us before the world began. That's, that's mind-boggling as well. He could see each of us here today, sitting here, honouring him just by our presence amongst the group, the, uh, the fellowship of the, of the saints. That uh, Matthew Henry uh, mentioned him a couple of weeks back at a house meeting just came up. He, he wrote a commentary, I don't know, it's 1800 sometime like that. You can, you can get his commentary on the Bible and it's, it's very old English and it's pretty hard to sometimes get your head around. But he really does have some gems in there and he makes the point about this particular scripture where it says how you know, Christ says, you gave them to me. And his comment was that um, uh, gave us then me as sheep to the shepherd to be kept, as a patient to the physician to be cured, and as children to a tutor to be taught. So Christ has all of these roles in our life to be to teach us, to keep us, to heal us. He captures that, I thought he captured that rather well. The second part here is protection for these disciples. And he says um, in verse 9, 9 to 11, he says, My prayer is not for the world, but for those that you have given me, because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you, and you have given them to me, so that they bring me glory. There's a purpose and a reason. Now I am departing from the world, and they are staying in this world. But I am coming to you, Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name, so that they will be united just as we are. During my time here I protected them by the power of the name that you gave me, and I guarded them so that not one was lost, except the one headed for destruction, as the scriptures foretold. It's a pretty interesting comment there at the beginning of verse 1. Who doesn't want to pray for the world? And when we look at the trouble and strife that's around the place, we've just you know, heard a little bit there of Cameroon, just one tiny area. Of the conflict in the world, who doesn't want to pray for the world? And yet Christ doesn't pray for the world. Because, you know, that's... In a way, it's on the path to destruction. Christ's role and our role is not so much to pray for the world, to to be the influence in the world that we're a part of, to be leaders of people to Christ, to be leaders of our friends to salvation, to show them that you know while this this world is as it is, it's only Christ's return that's going to put it in order. 
It's only when Christ takes charge that all knees will bow and people will be brought to in subjection to Jesus Christ and in his rule and his authority and things will be good. You know, things will continue on this world in, in this earth for a time after Christ's return. Here from Revelations, we understand from Revelations. So Christ didn't pray for the world. And maybe that's a little lesson to us. As much as it grieves us, what so much as what is happening, our prayer, maybe a more effective prayer for us, is about our role in the world and our part to play. And if we're led to do something particular in the world, then, then do so and do it with all of you, all of your, your enthusiasm and energy and with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It talks about them being kept. We pray the prayer, don't we, in the Lord's Prayer? Well, the thought, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. And he's talking about protection here, and we'll see a little bit in the next verses as well. Christ isn't praying to God that the disciples are protected from death because they all died, we will all die unless Christ returns. What he's protecting them from is Satan and the evil one. Amen? That's the protection that we need. The protection we need, the protection not just from Satan, well, yes, and from Satan, but from the influences that are ungodly, influences on us that, in this world that are ungodly. And that because sometimes we're in this world and they just are very subtle, we just don't observe them, we don't sense them, we don't see them for what they are. And these are the things that God is praying, Christ is praying for us on our behalf that we're protected, to be protected from the influence of sin and from you know, those doubts and the enemies of our faith. I guarded them so that no one was lost. We, all of us had that guard in our life. Amen. The third part of this, he's praying about holiness for his disciples. Now I am coming to you, verse 13, down to 19. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so that they would be filled with joy. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they don't belong to the world just as I don't belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to the world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is true. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. I gave myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they can be made holy by your truth. Sent into the world. Well, that's our commission, isn't it? But um, what's the first thing he says? Filled with joy. Filled with what joy? Well, maybe it's whose joy? It's filled with Christ's joy. This is that joy that settles deep in our hearts. This is the joy that can't pass away. This is the peace that we can't understand. This is what Christ prays for us. They do not belong to the world. This is, you know, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 9, it says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed. We are perplexed but not in despair. We are persecuted, but we're not forsaken, struck down, but never destroyed. This is you know, the conundrum 
of our relationship with God, despite whatever might be happening in our lives, yet we can have this peace, this um, absence of perplexity. We're not puzzled. We're, um, we're never destroyed. We are held, supported, and loved by our Father. So it's good when we feel like we don't belong in this world. Alright? It's good when we feel like we don't belong because we don't. We are called to be totally different people, transformed by the renewing of our minds. We have the same body, but we have the Holy Spirit now living in us. We are totally different people and we have got to appreciate that holiness, that separation, that consecration that we're called to. In, in the Catholic Church, they consecrate saints and churches and implements. We don't do that. There's nothing holy about this lectern uh, or this building, but there is something very holy about ourselves. And to consecrate something is to purify something, is to prepare something for so that it's whole and healthy and acceptable to God. And we've got to do continue to prepare ourselves, to consecrate ourselves, and to make sure that the walk we are living in this life is a consecrated one. And there are so many things that would tear us away from that. We've got to be very careful of that. Pure, holy and just and righteous. So God is, Christ is praying all of these things that we be made holy by his truth. As we use the word of God, as we know the word of God, not just like we've heard it read, but we know it inside. That's when it makes a difference to us. And then the last part of the chapter, in a way this is my favourite, because he's praying for me. He's praying for you too, but I like to think he's just praying for me. Verse 20. And I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. We have their message through the scripture, through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. So he's praying for us here now. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they also be in us, so that the world will believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory, there's the glory again, I have given them the glory that you gave me so that they may may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory that you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. O righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know that you sent me. I have revealed you to them, and I will continue to do so. And then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. And this is the great miracle of the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us, God, Jesus Christ, the whole Godhead 
is living within us and we are connected to the whole Godhead. Do you get the sense here of you know the value of unity and of being united not just with each other, but we are united and intimately linked with Jesus Christ and God Himself. Amen, hey? No wonder that we're glorified. No wonder that the glory of God shines out of us as it shone out of the face of Moses. Amen? That's what it needs to be. Uh, we sometimes, maybe <laughs> when you're not feeling that way, that this is what Christ has prayed for you and prayed for me. This is what Christ has prayed for us to be. And if Christ has prayed for it all, I'm happy to accept Christ's prayer on my behalf. Amen? Because of this glory that's in us, we're recognised as children of God. We're recognised because we are so linked and so wedded to Jesus Christ and to God. As a result that we're witnesses, we demonstrate God, and of course we're faithful in being his children. So that last point, I don't know, I don't think John did anything by chance or happenstance. John was very purposeful in every word that he wrote and he finishes this prayer with Christ's comment about the love of Jesus Christ, the love of God. I've revealed it to them and I will continue to do so, then your love for me will be in them and I will be in them. You know that there's three foundations to our faith, uh, to our, our relationship, our, our, our um, place with God is faith, hope and love. John always emphasised love. Um, he was, he was, that's who he was. You know, Christ had grown very close to his disciples and they'd responded to him. They'd learnt about him and I, I am a little jealous, I must say, that, um, that I haven't had the same experience the disciples had after Jesus was resurrected and he was with them for how many days? 50 days. My arithmetic's not real good at the moment. Maybe 20 or 30 days, maybe a month or something. And Jesus was just, suddenly their eyes were open. They'd seen his, his death. They'd witnessed his death. They'd even gone back to their old jobs. I thought, well, that was, that's the end of that. Now, for all of the time, the three years that Christ had spent with them, uh, he dies on the cross and they, well, what now? They were leaderless. And yet, then they saw him resurrected and they had to be convinced. They all had to be convinced, not just Thomas. I reckon, I've said this before, but I reckon Thomas got a bad rap. You know, we call the doubting Thomas now. None of the other disciples believed until they saw Christ either. It's just that Thomas was last in the list. So he got to the bad rap. So everyone felt that way. Didn't know who Christ was. But then Christ returns. He's resurrected and he spends all of that time, probably a month or so and more deeply explaining the word of God and suddenly the lights are just going off in their head. Can you imagine what those days would have been like just sitting at the feet of Jesus and getting downloaded with um, you know, all of the stuff that he had to share? We see some of that in, in the Gospels, but I don't think there isn't enough words in the Gospels and in the, in the letters of the, um, of the apostles to us to you know, give all of that information. The Holy Spirit helps, but I'm still a bit jealous that the disciples had that time. 
So Christ prayed for us that we would have eternal life, that we would have his name, that God's word in our heart, Christ's joy, and the same glory that Christ experienced. Our big brother prayed this prayer for us. Amen? Our big brother prayed this prayer for us and all of it applies to us. He made restoration possible for us and now continues to exceed it. So Christ's work is done. Our work is now here on this earth. But he's praying that we're united with him. We are misfits in the world, that we never feel like we are connected in this world, but we're good fits for heaven. So when we find ourselves in this promised land in a battle, maybe with doubt sometimes rising, remember who our real friends are. There's God who glorifies us as we glorify and honour him. There's our Saviour who glorifies us and mediates for us with God and who prayed this remarkable prayer for us. And we've got each other. So that 1 John 5.14, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us and then responds. Amen? This is our Christ. This is our God. I love this prayer and I hope you love a little bit more too.